Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and I'm joined today by Dr. Eric Helms for another Q&A, which is going to be super fun. Um, I do briefly want to say we are now on Patreon, um, and one of the benefits you get of being a supporter of the show is um, your questions biased when they come through, so they get asked to Eric or whoever we might have on the show. That's one of the benefits we're running at the moment. Um, so yeah, all of our kind of current patrons thank you very much and we're on with the show how are you doing eric all good i'm doing even better now that i'm talking to you buddy so. <laughs> it's always the nicest thing to hear <laughs> so <laughs> we're digging into the first question which is from sean webb and uh, he is asking about mini cuts and he said mm -hmm. how does eric manipulate training during a mini cut um and that's actually his only question he has another question after this but that's the first one on mini cuts you know, if a mini cut is mini enough, I normally don't tra change training at all. I mean, um, like the, the longest possible thing I would call a mini cut is six weeks. Um, and yeah, if it's six weeks, you probably want to have a deload in there somewhere. That's probably like the one thing I would make sure of. But if it's four weeks, you can, you can, you can get away with that without actually having really any kind of modification to training. Um, the only time that would be different is kind of if you're mini cutting when you're too lean. Like I've seen some people who are like, oh, I'm double digits again. Better, <laughs> better, better mini cut. And it's like, eh, maybe, maybe you're just trying to stay too lean. Um, and that, that's caused its own host of problems because you're lean and dieting basically. Um, but uh, for the most part, I don't think you have to do anything with training for mini cuts. Okay, perfect. Nice and easy. And then the second one was, have you made any changes to your general recommendations for training nutrition's Nutrition for powerlifters or bodybuilders in the past year or two? Yeah, I would say I have, um, but not, not nothing massive. Uh, it's enough that I'm that I'm going to be rewriting. Well, I should say rewriting. That we're putting out the second edition of the Muscle and Strength Pyramids later this year, uh, planned later this year, uh, and I think we'll actually get that. But it's always good to put the little disclaimer in there. So the main thing is now that we have more granularity with more meta analyses since I originally put those out, um, I think we can do a better job of giving people the tools to build their own programs. Like, hey, do X number of sets per week per body part on X number of days instead of kind of the reps per, yeah. per body part that, that I gave before. Um, and we've got a little more detail around how different intensity zones are play out. Like uh, there's a recent study that came out uh, that Schoenfeld was a part of where they kind of found the, the, the lower ceiling of, of load. E even when you go to failure, it seems like something as low as like 20% of 1RM is probably too light. Uh, even if you do go to failure, even when you match for volume load, even probably if you match the total number of sets you did. Um, and so I think that that's useful information to kind of bring in the reins a little bit for, for when you're telling people what loads they can use for hypertrophy. Um, not that I'd be recommending like, oh, so you use 30%. It's, that's not really practical, but I think that can be useful information um, just to kind of give some a little more detail, a little more specificity to it. Um, I think also now that we have more clarity around where kind of the, the benefits of at least volume equated frequency ranges stop being beneficial, like kind of around that two or three times per week uh, threshold, I can be a little more confident in saying, hey, use frequency as a tool to increase volume uh, and then start with that kind of two times a week uh, frequency. So it's, it's really actually not different when it comes down mm -hmm. to what are the recommendations. So I have a little more confidence in them. I can give a little more shades of gray between the black and white recommendations and 
Um, yeah, we have more mounting data that training to failure isn't a requirement. So I, I would say uh, a lot of it's just a little more reinforcement and I could be a little more clear and uh, specific. So That's really good because I know when I was first getting into programming and I was using the, the kind of worm bomb recommendations that you've spoken about on your videos and things and trying to work out kind of multiplying the sets by the reps and mm. working out for, and I was like, oh, this is just not fun. So the, the sets yeah. is much more just clearer and easier to use. So no, I, I really like that. And I think that'll be a great addition to the book, even though it's something small, um, it's just making yeah. your work even easier to use. Um, I did have a question actually related to, you talked about kind of not training to failure so much is this came up on uh, Brian Miners. He does a hump question of the week on his Instagram. And he kind of asked, and I would love to hear your answer on this because some of my clients asked me what I thought to this because they follow him as well. And it was whether kind of evidence-based and more evidence that's coming out is making us work harder or less hard as athletes. Um, so I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on that. Whether I don't know if you participated even. Mm. So yeah, actually, I think that question, not to take ownership of it or anything like that, that question probably came out of, uh, and this, this won't be a sneak peek because this is going to come out after this comes out, but my next episode or probably what will seem like an episode ago of, uh, of AO uh, is with Brian Miner. So I had a, a two-part discussion with him where we talk about um, what we think the mechanisms of hypertrophy are, what training should probably look like, what it means. And we were trying to get some discussion around um, does going to failure, those last reps that go towards failure more useful than the ones prior to it. And uh, we kind of had some enlightening discussions there. And, and so, yeah, if we're advising people not to train to failure, does that make them into like more of wusses, you know, (laughs) like, you know, you don't need an RPE scale if everything's to failure, bro, you know? Um, And I think the answer would be done properly. No, because the argument against training to failure is that it inhibits your ability to train with the frequency we think is ideal and with the volume we think is ideal. Uh, And it's more about, uh, managing the recovery side of it so that you can do more effective work. So that said, I can't tell you, I've been training in a commercial gym lately, which is not ideal in terms of keeping me sane. Like there's some awesome trainers there. There's some great people there. Some of the regulars I really like the great, the great equipment. I like the atmosphere. It's, it's one floor down from where I work. Um, although the, the weightlifting gym that I train is just, just two floor down. It's not really a big <laughs> deal. But nonetheless, like if I want to do bodybuilding stuff, and I don't think weightlifting gym is, is limited, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I want to do tricep extensions on a machine or lat pull downs or whatever, I, I, I do a lot of my training sessions there. But I am shocked at how far from failure almost everyone stops. Um, like they're not on the RPE scale yet. you don't I don't know how many RIR they have left right and if I don't know they sure don't know you know what I'm saying like so I it's it's funny it's difficult like when I'm talking to bodybuilders and powerlifters and people who are trying to maximize everything I tell them like look we need to control how far from failure you are there needs to be some logic to that um and like sometimes they need to be told hey you can push that a little further don't be intimidated by the weights you know more so like in 
intermediate powerlifters who are in like a, a phase where they're gaining a lot of strength and they're not used to their new strength levels. Like I don't know, only could squat 405 last month and now I could probably do 440. Like, mm. so 405 is still intimidating to me. And that's a temporary condition, you know? And so those people need to know how to modulate their proximity to failure so they can train effectively and recover, um, and, you know, work on skill development. Uh, but if I was going to talk to your average person who comes to the gym once or twice a week and does, you know, a circuit of machines with decently okay form and then goes home, I'd be like, yeah, you need to take every one of those sets yeah. to failure because we're, we're not going to be maximizing volume. We're not going to be in the ideal range of frequency or volume or anything else. So what we can ensure is that the time you spend is effective. So I think, um, it's very much dependent on your audience. Like if I was just yes. a general fitness uh, person, um, which, which I'm not, even though I fill that role sometimes, I'd probably be like, look, like, in fact, I was just telling um, a family member of mine who was saying, Hey, uh, I'm thinking about getting into lifting weights. I don't have much time and it's easy for me to become unmotivated. And I said, look, go to the gym once per week. And I want you to do one set on these six machines uh, with the heaviest weight you can do for 10 to 15 reps. And then every time you hit 15 and you think you could do more and you, you, you had to, you had to, you went to failure and it was more than 15, go the next stack up in the weight. And then if you feel like you start to, you aren't, you aren't progressing, come in one more day per week and do it again. Like it's literally that so simple, simple, you know, and that, that gets you like 60% of the progress, like a totally maxed out, super psychotic OCD natural bodybuilder would get <laughs> like, like, you know, manipulating everything. So I think. I think it's, it's very uh, dependent on who's listening. So yeah, that, 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 I guess that's the main take home is know your audience. Yeah, I think uh, that was what the conclusion we came down to was we did actually start discussing kind of deloads and the fact you can use the RPE scale and things. And so actually a lot of the time, the easy thing for a bodybuilder is just to go balls out and just push, push, push. Where, mm -hmm. And the hard thing is actually holding yourself back so you can accumulate more volume and do more work later. And, same, and they also brought up flexible diety and how on paper that looks like things are easier but actually <laughs> trying to kind of m calculate the macros and meals out like that's a lot harder than just going out ah, it's, it's a cheat meal mate like i'm fine <laughs> yeah i mean look at it this way um i think initially people were arguing that i'll being you know too flexible with your diet you're not going to get the same kind of graininess or, or shredded physique but i've seen i'd say that the, the if i had to pin down what variable in a diet is going to predict how lean you're going to get, which is not the way you should do this. But just if I had to it'd be diet length, yeah. right? If, if, if I, if all else is equal and you tell me you dieted for 16 weeks or 24 weeks, I would expect a less shredded physique seeing 16 weeks. Uh, I think most coaches would agree with that. And the thing that's allowed people to diet for 24 weeks without being too stressed out is the flexible dieting strategies. Yeah. And we've seen, Man, I can't, I can't tell you how much this scene has changed. Like, um, I could go into shows and do well with, with a not great physique compared to like the people I was competing against because I would come in lean. Yeah. And now, fuck man, like everyone's coming in. Yeah. Not everyone, but a lot more. It used to be like you, you get striated glutes and you have an average or higher physique. You've got a WBF pro card. Mm -hmm. That's the way it was like 2006 to I'd say 2000, like 11. Wow. And then after that, it's been like everyone has been figuring out how to how to set it up. They're just not yeah. doing dumb shit, you know. Um, and now there's a lot more people coming in shredded. So 
clearly in this case, making it quote unquote easier has actually allowed people to work harder. Yeah. And, and I think it's probably the same thing with, with some of these training recommendations we're making. Yeah, no, totally agree. Awesome. So we're going to the next question, which is from Sebastian Forget. And he said, um, since he wrote, Oh, since he wrote the nutrition book, given the new data available, did he change his mind on supplements? So very similar. I don't know if you got any differences to huh. supplementation. Yeah, yeah. So supplements is honestly the thing that probably is going to change the most over time with the, well, <laughs> I should say some things probably aren't going to change, like caffeine and creatine are going to be there. And then 99% uh, of everything else not being there, that's going to be the same. But there's always these borderline fringe supplements that kind of come in and kind of come out. Um, and like I'm pro I flip flopped on like uh, citrulline malate a couple times mm -hmm. as the data has flip flopped. Um, we're at the stage now where I think beta alanine is not going to be in there. Cool. Uh, we've got multiple methods now that that suggest unless you're doing something for a minute or longer, it's probably just not going to be helpful. And even for a bodybuilder, I just don't I just don't see it anymore. Um, and then citrulline malate is it was going strong. 2015, 2016, that yeah. was citrulline malates. It was, you know, it won, it won, it won a couple titles, you know, and then it blew its reverse diet and just didn't come back in 2017 and 20. <laughs> um, yeah, citrulline uh had like three studies in a row where they found really, really no significant effects. And I, I don't think it's that citrulline malate doesn't work. I think it's just that when you're dealing with these small sample sizes, um, there's going to be just by statistical chance that happening. And the fact that we have like, five in favor, three uh, that are null. There's no negatives, obviously. It's not harming performance. Uh, I would say the likelihood that it's doing something positive is still there. It's just, it's not going to be much, yeah. you know? So that might kind of fill the same void that I think Beta Alanine had in the book before. Um, branch chain amino acids, I'm going to just probably not even, they're, they're going to be out completely. I think I, I said like, some caveated stuff in there. So it, it'll actually shrink a bit. Um, and I think I'll probably be a little less positive about fish oil. Um, fish oil keeps like, it's always slightly in the green, like this yeah. is a good thing for health, but it, it, it's, um, it used to be the miracle drug, like for, for 10, 15 years. And now it's just kind of like, yeah, probably not a bad idea for some things, you know? Yeah. Um, but not a whole lot's changed, um, to be honest. So, uh, we will have, I will have a little more data about caffeine, which, which I think is cool. Like we have some data on, um, the mechanisms of how it works and how, what implications that might have and habituation, yeah. but that's about it. No, awesome. And actually on the talk of creatine, this recently came up in, um, our Facebook group and I know it comes up all the time. Creatine and hair loss, Eric, is that why the hair's going back a bit? Have you been supplementing a bit much? <laughs> oh, Bro, I thought I was doing good, man. I no, mine's going the, uh, as well. <laughs> I think I think this is about as far as it's going to recede, bro. Um, so, yeah, I would actually like to see a study on. It's also the fact that I'm 35. I mean, that doesn't help, you know. And I come from two families that both have male pattern balding, <laughs> and the secret steroid use, of course. <laughs> but uh, but the um, no the uh, like all we've got is this one study showing alterations in DHT, you know. Yeah, I would love to see an actual study where uh, they took a, a large sample and had placebo creatine and actual creatine and, and people were off to the races and then we actually measured um, not just DHT but the outcome. You know, I, 
I don't know what happened, but it's uh, it's worth looking into. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. And something something people to think about like is that worth it? You know. Yeah. I guess for bodybuilders, we're often shaving our heads anyway. So yeah, <laughs> shaving most our whole body. Most of us wish would trade hair for for gains. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I bet we would. Yeah, we actually know. would. <laughs> um, no, so. perfect. And actually, the only other one I wanted to hear about was HMB. I don't know if I know HMB was in muscle and strength periods. Are you still saying that could be beneficial for anti catabolism? Now I'm going to pull that one out too. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, we uh, so obviously there, there's some data there that we really just can't trust. Uh, with the with the controversy around um, some of the studies that came from that group, um, but even not including those studies, there was a meta analysis that came out uh, uh, late last year. Is that right? Was it 2018 or 2017? Anyway, recently, and it was specifically on trained athletes, and it didn't find any any effects. And and even if you look at like the 09 meta analysis. Um, it only found effects in untrained individuals. So, and that, and that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. when you first lift, start lifting weights, you get a ton of DOMS, you know, you get a, a ridiculous amount of, of, of muscle soreness and exaggerated muscle damage if you're doing this for the first time to the point that's probably counterproductive. Um, that's a temporary condition, you know, that the repeated bout effect is useful in that manner. Uh, and it makes sense that a anti-catabolic and something that has been shown to reduce uh, markers for muscle damage, HMB, would perhaps be useful for beginners in that way. Uh, but it's just not a concern once you are, you're well trained. Um, like there was a study that we recently reviewed in mass where they did like a, a, an ass ton of, uh, of, of, of draw box jumps, but not up. I'm, I'm losing my, my vocabulary as I age. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so drop jumps. So they're jump, jumping down off a box, causing a lot of eccentric damage as they have to, you know, take their body weight as it was accelerating from gravity and, and absorb that impact. They did a, an amount you would not do. This is a study designed to induce damage, and they did find an effect of uh, HMB free acid in uh, reducing some markers of of that damage. Mm-hmm. So maybe you could speculate that if you were in a like a very high volume overreaching block, that perhaps it could be useful, but. Mm-hmm. I also struggle to see how it'd be more useful than just having a high protein intake. Is it's right. just a metabolite of leucine? You know, like we can talk about all these ways to make uh, you know HMB be more bioavailable and get taken up better. Um, but unless there's something it's doing that we're just not aware of, and that's possible. I'm not a HMB expert. You know, we'd have to ask like Peter Fitchin or something. Um, that it's doing something that that leucine or a high protein diet couldn't do. Then uh, I don't know, man. Like. I would love to see, uh, like, they re- repeated that study with both groups taking in, you know, a gram per pound of, of protein from mm-hmm. from animal and dairy sources. Like, would that still happen? I don't know. So, yeah, I think HMB is going to come out too. It's funny because when you're naming kind of beta alanine, citrulline malate, HMB, all I'm thinking is like HMB tastes like crap. Brilliant citrulline malate. <laughs> oh, it adds a bit of like sourness to like your pre-workout. I quite like that. Beta alanine again tingles. If you want those, I'm just thinking about all the. Those are like the only yeah. things you're actually getting from them. I guess is what we're kind of finding out rather than any other benefits for bodybuilding. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Tasting. You can make your face itch, you know, and then taste like battery acid and then have a bad workout. So, <laughs> yeah. And actually, I want to relate it because we're just talking about supplements. Do you ever have, um, and I know Cliff Wilson has a line, I think, of kind of GDAs, glucose disposal agents. 
do you ever have recommendations or kind of do you ever have any of your off-season athletes taking any of these and do you see any kind of efficacious use of using have having those sorry i don't think so um like for, for me to pull the trigger on, on a supplement i need to see not just a biomarker you know or something like that i need to see a clinical outcome consistently you know yeah um before I start messing with stuff like that, because it's, it's, it's a financial burden. Yeah. And I think I've told the story enough times of how like the aspartic acid flip flopped and then ended up being potentially harmful and people jumped the gun early and, and, and how you're, especially with, with an unregulated supplement industry, which is largely produced in the United States, the more shit you put in your body, the more you're playing a little bit of a statistical game, yeah. you know, unless you're super careful. Uh, and you know, as, as I, I feel like it's just kind of my duty as a, a natural bodybuilding coach and uh, provider of information to take a conservative stance because false positives do happen. You know, we all joke about it like, oh, it's the first thing any athlete says when they fail. It's like true, and it's also what they would say if they actually had yeah. a false positive. You know, so I'm not saying that every time some guy gets busted for having trembling, the system is like, oh, it's a protein. But that's what actually what happened. But I, I do personally know of individuals who have failed drug tests, uh, and I, I would bet money that it was knowing the person and what happened, and, and then the supplement company and information that came out later. I think it was either contaminated or actually uh, spiked. So, like, yeah, you need to be really conscious of where you're getting it from, and you probably don't want to just be taking fucking everything, mm-hmm. in my opinion, for those reasons. So it better damn well work because. Even the best supplements aren't going to do much anyway. Yeah. So don't roll the dice is my is my take. No, I think that's actually incredibly refreshing to hear that kind of it's the, the thought of that it could actually be negative um, and we haven't got enough data to support that it's positive to out rule out that it could be actually negative in future. So no, I think that's brilliant. And yeah, supplements, I, every single time it just becomes disappointing. There seems to be the, the tiny handful that are going to provide you any results. And even those, if you didn't have them, you're still going to get most of it from your nutrition and training. So yeah, the, the anyone pyramids. who's <laughs> absolutely. And anyone who's unconvinced of how much, uh, training and nutrition can do. Just take a look at my Instagram and look at some of the pictures I posted from people from like 1900 to 1930, uh, before there was even gyms, you know, <laughs> like a, a, like a gym is open. It's called like a physical cultural center. And it gets like, like a, like a newspaper covers it because it's so crazy. Like, ah, these guys have had a place to lift these dumbbells. <laughs> Isn't that funny, Joe? You know? Um, and these guys look ridiculous. Yeah. And some of them could, could be pro natural bodybuilders today. So, uh, probably don't necessarily need any supplement. Perfect. Um, and we'll move on to uh, Tom Venuto's question. And I was surprised that he was actually in my Facebook group. I was like, wow, Tom Venuto's in here. And if you haven't awesome. heard of Tom, um, he's a great writer within kind of our industry, more gen pop than kind of bodybuilding specific. But I think he did compete as well. So um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So he said, Eric's presentation on plants-based nutrition for physique athletes for the fit pro development team was the most scientifically accurate and intellectually honest I've ever heard, which doesn't surprise me, but that's really nice to hear. He said, I'd, I'd love to hear him summarize that info for the public consumption, including how to talk about the subject, given the amount of bias both ways. Awesome. So yeah, I, I can definitely do that. Um, I will just put it out there as a way to shill for my own money that uh, I'd have two presentations in mass if you'd like to hear those as well. Uh, granted, that's not as much for the public, but if you want to pay me money, uh, you can also hear that. 
<laughs> so, okay, so here's the deal. Um, I am personally a, what I would describe as a flexitarian um, or reducitarian. I think flexitarian sounds better because flex, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and so purely for ethical reasons, uh, I minimize my consumption of, of animals and focus. If I do eat it, it's, it's, it's from like, like pole caught fish or something like that. Um, and so I made a presentation for FitPro development to talk about, uh, vegetarian and vegan bodybuilding. And essentially the, the first thing I started with was, Hey, look, uh, the overall data shows that when you compare vegetarians, uh, to comparable omnivores, uh, not the general population, uh, there does not seem to be a health advantage. People tend to have the same all-cause mortality, uh, if we're going to look at kind of a broad metric of, of quote-unquote health. Um, and you can find data, and of course you can always cherry pick, um, but you can find a fair amount of data where if you compare vegetarians to just general pop, right, uh, where they're much healthier and live longer. Um, and the thing is, is that as soon as you say, I'm a, someone that classifies themselves as a vegetarian, that means they think about the way they eat. And vegetarians typically don't smoke. They don't drink to excess. They often live an active lifestyle. And they often, even before they became vegetarians, had a lower BMI and body weight and all these things. So they are health conscious individuals on average compared to the general population. So once you control for that, uh, that's when you start to see the effects of vegetarian diets going away. So what this typically, what, what this tells me is that controlling calorie intake and including a lot of fruits and vegetables is really, really healthy. Uh, not that uh, the inclusion of reasonable amounts of meat intake and not necessarily like all like, you know, processed meats and all the nitrates, you know, um, is, is it's a healthy diet. And I think that's borne out in the way we see those food foods interact in isolation and we look at epidemiological studies. Um, so, uh, and, and, that, and that also holds true for performance, uh, that um, we don't typically see an advantage from a vegetarian diet for performance. That one's a lot more easy to show with the data. So I started that presentation with saying, look, the only quote unquote evidence-based argument for following a vegetarian or vegan diet would be an ethical one. And an ethical argument is subjective, so which means I'm not going to argue with you. If you tell me your personal ethics dictate that, fair enough, you know. Um, so, so that was where I started with it. And then the rest of the presentation was all about how on the scale of say lacto ovo vegetarian all the way to strict vegan, you can make uh, bodybuilding work. It just requires more work on your part, more education and a little bit more supplementation to go along that spectrum. Uh, but I do believe that a vegan who knows what they're doing, uh, can actually leave no chips on the table and, and be fine. It just requires being attentive and, and, and spending a fair amount of time uh, manipulating your diet. And it does make things a little harder, although I think the outcomes could be the same. Um, trying to do a contest prep diet while being vegan uh, really ends up limiting your food choices as your macros have to get lower. Uh, and it, it kind of precludes cutting your carbohydrates down very low unless you're going to be consuming uh, vegan protein powder while you diet. So there's a lot of things like that. Um, but when it really came down to it, if you were uh, you know, looking at what supplements do I have to take, you can take maybe one or two more than a, what a normal bodybuilder would take and cover your bases and, and probably be okay. So I think that is um, a very middle of the road, but accurate piece of information that, that I, I wanted to spend some time 
um, giving that presentation uh, because I think there's a lot of this um, straw manning on both sides right. uh, where, where vegans will, uh, if they're scientifically minded, will often cherry pick data if they believe in the health side of it. If they're, if they're a vegan who does it purely for ethical reasons and is also smart, they often don't and they're out there. But unfortunately, you know, the loudest, most ridiculous opinions typically get the most attention. You know, and it's it's created this this blowback pendulum where now we have people who are not as a joke actually following the carnivore diet, yeah, which yeah. is r ridiculous. You know, so it's um, I think it's very important to have those um, those honest, evidence based, moderate uh, discussions where uh, people can see the the middle ground because I I see the pendulum is going to swing no matter what. You know, in, in terms of this this industry, we, I, you haven't been around as long as I have, but I know you've seen it just in, just in your time. It's it's something I've seen just yeah. bounce back and forth, and I feel like the voices in our community act as basically putting like some jelly in the middle. Like it's still gonna it's still gonna swing, but maybe it'll slow it down. It won't quite yeah. get as high. You know, um, I'll interact with someone, and I try to do it in a very respectful way, and. And not try to beat them down. And I try to discourage my followers from all jumping in the comments like, you're an idiot, you know. Yeah. Um, so that, that always just makes people dig their heels in. And if even if they come away with, oh, I guess, you know, uh, you know, uh, a vegan diet isn't necessarily uh, like, like the best things in sliced bread. But I, I still personally, for ethical reasons, want to stay with that. Like even if I just shift the needle just a little bit uh, and make them aware of some of the data, I think that that does a lot. And I think people people undervalue that. So uh, I just caution people to try to really have rational but but respectful discussions here, because um, I've been on both sides of it. You know, someone yeah. has, will hear that I'm a vegetarian, and they'll immediately start telling me stuff about, don't you know that's that's not necessarily uh, better for health or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I fucking know that. <laughs> you know, like you're assuming why I'm doing it's the reason that, you, like, you have an image of me that you haven't even listened to me, let me talk yet, and and vice versa. So. It's, uh, yeah, that, that's kind of the, the high level takeaway from that. Um, I do have an article, uh, where I wrote that, that, that was kind of written based on an interview, uh, that is, is available to anyone who wants to read it. And it kind of goes some over some of the more fine detail recommendations that that's totally free for anyone to read. Okay. Um, and I can just give that to you after that to put in okay. the show notes, I guess. Perfect. Cool. Yeah. And mass is always linked below. Um, so you'll be actually helping Eric out and us out because we are an affiliate and proud to be one, to be honest, um, because it is great. So uh, no, I thought that was great. And it's really refreshing to hear. And I see why Tom liked it so much, because so often people, it's the same with training, nutrition, people attach a lot of emotion to the way they do things and they try and beat people down. And it's kind of like, but it, the, the, the dichotomy is just really unsettling at times. Yeah. And I can understand it when, it when it's an ethical or moral choice for someone, yeah. um, you know, but, but it's also not fair to, for something that you see as a moral choice, if someone else is not in that frame of mind to treat them as though they're, they're willfully being immoral. Yeah. That's not true either. You know? So uh, I think, I think that there's a lot of disservice and that just makes people think vegans are crazy psychos because yeah. some of them are, yeah. you know, <laughs> even, even though I, I, I share many of the, the same ethical beliefs. So Awesome. Cool. We will get on to the next question, which was from Alpha Madhu. And he asked, if carbs have been pushed below 100 grams deep into a cut, what are Eric's peri-workout nutrition recommendations? Uh, mm. The second part to that was, and what are his thoughts on pushing carbs to five times body weight in kilograms on high days? 
as this means to maximize glycogen replenishment while keeping fat low, even if that means going to a slight surplus? Yeah, so the big thing I, I, would, I, would, I would say is that five times body, five times body weight's a little better, but 100 grams um, means a, something a lot different for a, someone who competes at 83 kilos, who's you know 5'10", versus a female competitor who competes at 48 kilos, who's you know barely over five foot. Um, and in that second case, that's like, oh, you're doing pretty good. You're keeping your carbs up there. You know, you're that's two grams per kg if you think about it. Yeah, um, a little more. Um, so, so, so I, I would say uh, when I look at man, where, where, where's kind of my bottom end for carbohydrate intake in most cases, unless you just do what you got to do, it's right around like one gram per kg. That's kind of like, you know, that that's like, if I have to go below that, that's when I start scratching my face. I'll ask Steve Taylor or RD, Hey, what do you think about this? So I'll kick it out to, to Jeff, Berto, Andrea and Brad and be like, Hey, like what other options we have here? Am I missing something? Like, are you guys saying something? I'm not maybe, Maybe there's, look at the pictures. Do you think they're still losing? Like, I don't want to take them that low. Um, unless there's someone who we've established as better on higher fat, lower carb. So with that said, you may, be, you may be like, yeah, I get all that. But what's a practical recommendation for when I have 100 grams of carbs uh, for a period workout? I would say, you know, man, uh, it, there, I do see at times people respond better to period workout carbohydrates when they're dieting. Um, so it's almost like correcting a fatigue deficiency rather than carbs boosting energy, I think. So it may be that you have to look at your pre-workout meal as the meal where you actually get a decent bolus of carbs and the rest of the time is mostly veggies, fat, and protein, mm -hmm. you know, <clears throat> excuse me. So maybe you have, let's say you work out after lunch, uh, maybe your dinner has a de decent serving of carbs and maybe your pre-workout, uh, your, your lunch has another bolus of carbs. Those are both like 40. And then the other 20 grams that you have per day is, is vegetables spread throughout the day. Um, and then as far as going really high in carbohydrates for uh, gaining phases, um, I think you really can get away with a various amount of breakdowns of macros as far as carbs or fat. <coughs> Unless you have a throat tickle um, <laughs> like I do. As you can see, carbs make my throat tickle. That's why I don't eat them. So... Um, so yeah, I, I think people have talked a lot about the whole idea of like, look, hey, if you can keep um, you know, dietary fat low and carbs high, maybe you could avoid fat gain. Um, I'm, I'm less convinced of that just because it's, it's kind of a mechanistic argument and uh, every time we have a mechanistic, not every time, many times we have a mechanistic basis for something without hard data, um, it just ends up not panning out to be true. Um, so I'd want to see a little, a little more data there, um, because like bodybuilding, yeah, like it takes some, some carbohydrates, it's activity, it's glycogen dependent to some degree, but man, you, you can just totally go ham and you're going to have like 40% depletion of, of glycogen and you'll still, even on like two grams, three grams per kg of carbohydrates in a non-deficit by the next day, you'll be, you'll be repleted. Like glycogen is not going to be the rate limiting thing to the volume you're doing. Um, maybe when you're dieting, but not in the case of where you're at five times body weight and carbohydrates. Um, so yeah, man, I, I, I just don't think, um, it makes a huge difference unless it does for you individually. I'll definitely concede that probably some individuals would do a lot better on a higher carbohydrate, 
uh, versus higher fat diet. Like Alberto has, has trialed this numerous times and he definitely sees that when he keeps his carbs quite high um, relative to his fat, then he does pretty well. But even in the off season, like his fat does get into like three digits just because mm -hmm. of sheer volume of calories. You know, it's not like, it's not like getting stored. Like when you have a TDE of 4,500, like 100 grams of fat goes pretty quick, you yeah. know. It's 20% of your calories. It's not much. So, yeah, I think um, you can trial it. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, a, a technique I'll often use in the off-season is I'll have someone do a month at 20% fat, a month at 40% fat, a month at 20% fat, a month at 40% fat. So it's basically you get two exposures to each one and then just track some subjective ratings uh, and performance and obviously take pictures and then see was there a consistent difference between the two. And I can tell you nine out of 10 times there's not, mm -hmm. but occasionally you will see a difference. Yeah, I think that's no brilliant. And I think, I mean, sometimes it is just individual preferences and sometimes mm -hmm. it's a bit of um, placebo maybe involved, like they hear that carbs are kind of better. So, and I think in many ways, if that's not kind of, it's not really harmful in many way. And then no. as long as people aren't being like, no, you have to do this, this is the way to do it. I, I think that can sometimes be beneficial. So no, I like that. And I think I also like the kind of the testing of it for a long period of time and like a big switch so 20% to 40% because I think a lot of people are like, oh yeah, I had those, like I lowered my fats by like five grams and increased my carbs by like 20 or whatever, uh, well, 10. Um, and I found it was but way better. And I'm kind of like, well, did you? Like, <laughs> it's just too small to really know. And yeah, the difference in maybe. fat there is one tablespoon of oil. Oh, yeah. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. So, absolutely. Cool. Uh, we get to Roberto Ricardiella's question and he asked, what is Eric's opinion on eating similar meals each day to avoid de decision fatigue, but still getting prescribed a serving of fruit and vegetables, but meals each day are repetitive? Uh, can nutrient deficiencies or suboptimal health results come from this? Probably not, because he started with the caveat of having a, a, a cycled amount of, uh, you know, fruits and vegetables. Um, yeah, I think that's probably fine. And I mean, knowing... Most people, they're going to be taking like a low dose multivitamin, some fish oil, you know, and then you mix in a lot of fruits and veggies. And then I don't think you need to switch out like your, your white rice for, for some white potato and your sweet potato for like barley rice or quinoa. I think you're fine. So, yeah, I, I think that that'd be absolutely fine. Nothing wrong with that. I think it's actually quite probably refreshing to hear because I think a lot well for myself I eat very regularly like the same things I think a lot of people eat the same things day in day out my dinner sometimes I think is the only thing that really switches um but the decision fatigue factor especially when you're busy probably like yourself Eric it's nice to know you've got like you just know what you're having you don't mm. need to worry about all the small yeah I eat pretty consistently um and you know to be honest this is this is an interesting side effect of the whole if it fits your macros flexible dieting uh, creating a unique culture within bodybuilding to where they don't look at what like Flex Wheeler did or, you know, any, any IFBB pro or anything like that. Like that's not even like they're, they're not on their radar whatsoever. Yeah. So they, um, they, they've, there's been a unique culture around food developed in the If It Fits Your Macros crowd. And it's based around recipes. It's based around uh, celebrating the food they eat, enjoying the food they eat, all this stuff. Uh, and I, while I think that is all good and fine and dandy and great, um, I never got exposed to 
like recipes when I was involved in bodybuilding from like 2005 to 2010. And then this all came out and it's, and it's because it was kept simple. And I think it was acknowledged that in some ways it is easier to follow a quote unquote clean approach because you're not, you're not getting highly palatable foods all the time, which would make you think about more foods, you know, like, um, the whole advent of food porn is let's get way more common for a new school bodybuilder to sit there, like spend 40 minutes making breakfast and then yeah. watching the food channel than it is for an old school person who just has Tupperware, broccoli, chicken and rice, you know, it's like getting it done. And while there's, there's issues in both communities, yeah. like, um, you know, the, the unreasonable attachment to that, a un unnecessary exclusion of foods to the point where you actually have nutrient deficiencies. But I think, I think like a lot of people think like, oh, the old school guys and gals, they, they're really missing out. And then like, man, like the, the amount of stress that I see, if it fits your macros, like hardcore preppers who don't realize this, like you have 120 grams of carbs and you're trying to make pancakes, like dude, eat, eat some broccoli. <laughs> like, <laughs> Get out of the kitchen. I'm. You have a 15 minute time limit on making your food. You know, um, I think I think there there is some some missed value to uh, simplifying the process, eliminating the decisions, and there's almost this this quest to okay, I am hungry, I'm starving, and I'm craving food. How can I satisfy that craving? And you can't. Yeah. You're shredded, and you don't have enough food. Your calories are too low, and I think. Um, when you're on a very low palatable restrictive diet, you just kind of get into a place of acceptance early yeah. on. Like this is just what I'm doing. Like I don't have an option. I don't get to eat, you know, frozen yogurt or, or have chocolate syrup. That's actually, you know, mostly chemicals and water uh, that tastes good, you know? So I think, uh, you have to, so this is obviously a huge tangent from what he asked, but I think there's a lot of value in having an appropriate amount of palatability in your yeah. diet but for the most part being a little more mechanical and repetitive and still covering your bases and having, you know, variety of fruits and vegetables like, like was suggested, but, uh, being a little more old school in that way. No, I completely agree. Um, awesome. We get on to Ryu Hayabusa's question and he asks, Definitely not his real name, but awesome. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's probably, yeah. Oh, is that an actual, is that a character or something or well, what? Yeah. I mean, uh, Ryu Hayabusa is that's Ninja Gaiden, bro. Oh, I okay. Mean, that's the ninja with the twenty-inch guns. Um, <laughs> and I'm not sure is that also the same Ryu from Street Fighter? That's yeah, the I was thinking he's that the Street Fighter Ryu. <laughs> you asked the question, and I will Google to see if I got the right Ryu. Wow. Yeah, I uh, I obviously well, I'm awful with names anyway. You're lucky I remember yours, Eric. So um, <laughs> if someone Eric, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> He said, if someone doesn't feel good, uh, feel good pec muscle engagement with the bench press, barbell and dumbbell, and their primary goal is hypertrophy, would they be better suited to use a machine where they do feel the target muscle or work with much lighter on the bench press to try and manipulate form to try and feel the target muscle more? Good question. Yeah, I think... Um... It depends on how long this person's been training. Like one thing I found consistently is that people have been training a couple of years, their mind muscle connection, not only is it just not that good because they haven't been training that long, but also they're not, it's not always accurate. Like 
you may be getting just fine growth and stimulation in your pecs, but you just don't really feel it because mm-hmm. you're, there's a lot of other things to focus on during a bench press, you know, like even today, even when I do like high rep squats, I don't feel it in a muscle group because I'm focusing so much on performing a squat. It's not like I'm like, oh, those vastest medialis when I hit that, that squat, you know? So, um, that's just kind of an overall caveat I, I would put out there. Um, secondly, I would say bench press is an absolutely fine movement, um, but it's completely not required for bodybuilding. And, um, so the main action of the pec is horizontal abduction, right? That's actually going across the midline of your body for those who can see the video. Uh, and that doesn't actually happen in a bench press. Uh, it's attempting to do that, but because your hands can't slide in on the bar, that's not going to happen. So a, a dumbbell might be a better, better way to go. If you feel that, um, is because you can allow your arm to track inward. Um, machines might, I mean the machine, you might feel more mind muscle connection just because there's less things to think about. You can't mess up the machine. You put it in the right spot. It's only going to go on one plane in both the X and the Y axis. Right. So, um, so yeah, I, I think if you do feel your chest more in a machine, it might just be that you can't focus on that many things during a bench press to actually feel your pecs. Um, and if you can't feel it in the machine, then probably dumbbell would be the, the answer that I would go with. Um, but also just assess like, are your pecs actually not growing or can you just not feel yeah. them? Cause it may just be, you, you don't like, I don't really feel my pecs that much on bench unless I go near to failure or do high reps. But man, for me, bench is the most effective chest exercise I've ever done. And I only do bench. Like, like every time I train, I do bench, you know, such a problem. So, <laughs> No, I'm seriously though. Like that, that's how I got my bench from right around like 140 kilos up to like 160, 165 was I started benching every time I trained, um, all the time I bench every time I train. So, uh, it was very effective, but, um, and it, my pecs grew a lot from it as well. So yeah, I, I would say first don't have to do the bench. Second, the fact that you don't feel it may not be a problem. So kind of objectively assess whether or not that's a weak point on you or not. And then I would say try dumbbell probably for maybe my first port of call. And then I did check on Google. I was right. Ryu Hayabusa oh. is from Ninja Gaiden. Uh, the Ryu Street yeah. Fighter is a different Ryu, although an equally impressive physique. So Ninja Gaiden was Xbox, wasn't it? Mm, what was that? Steve, oh. Ninja Gaiden was originally on original Nintendo, my friend. Oh, wow. Old it has school. been now on, on subsequent platforms, but I'll forgive that transgression. <laughs> I remember playing on, I was a PlayStation boy, so my friend had an Xbox, I remember playing it on there and it was a hard game. <laughs> it was, dude, original Nintendo was crazy hard. Absolutely crazy hard, <laughs> tell you what. Mm. Um, the only other thing I was going to add to what you said there was, I'm the same with Bench. I find it very, very like really useful for building my chest and I don't feel it when I'm doing it but afterwards when I get off the bench like my chest is just like pumped I'm like yeah. well that worked the pecs um similar to quads I guess uh with the squat like I don't necessarily feel it in the quads but afterwards my quads are then like oh yeah they're tired <laughs> they they've been worked so absolutely and, and I would say as a general rule I normal I would like to say Compound movements just focus on performance of, of the technical skill yes. and then isolations focus on you, you can definitely focus on the muscle, but I would say that For machine based back work. I think it's actually probably better to focus on like yes. I love me like a single arm Cable row and just thinking about my lat and doing some like lateral flexion and rotation I can really light up my entire lat 
Um, and I think that has to do with a couple of things. A, it's a machine, so it doesn't require that much control. It's, it's safe. Uh, you're not going to be able to round your back and injure yourself on a cable row. Um, be impressive if you could. Uh, and then two, I think muscles of the lower body and the back, we just don't quite have the same level of uh, awareness of. Yes. So it's like most common thing I run into is people who can't feel their lats more than any other muscle group that I can think about. So um, probably glutes after that. Uh, so, so yeah, I think there, there's some utility in, in thinking more internally focused for, for back training, at least for at first. And then you yeah. can start to just get more into the movement. No, I have to, I completely agree actually lats and hamstrings quite often kind of those pulling movements. I think it's just quite easy for form to look okay. Like you're doing it kind of right, but yeah. just to be slightly off so that you no longer have the tension where you thought you had it. So no, I really love that addendum. So nice one. Um, the next question is from Mac. Oh no, this came up in my Q&A with Mike yesterday. He was like, no, you have to try and say this name. And I, I'm going to have to ask this person how to say their name. And I said, Makkej, <laughs> I can't say the name, last name. Dzonzik um, is M-A-C-I-E-J. Makkej. Makkej. Yeah, could be I don't know. We apologize, but we'll <laughs> answer your question. <laughs> <laughs> so we use this as the last question, and that's uh, what's Eric's approach to counting protein? Um, does he count? I think we might have had this before, actually. Does he count all protein from all food sources or just high quality, uh, whatever that's supposed to mean, he said, uh, such as dairy, fish, and meat? Um, he said, yeah, he knows you don't particularly eat meat, um, so protein supplements, etc. So do you just count, count, all. count it all yet? Um, yeah, in, if you have a overall high quality protein diet, I think it's, it's totally fine to count it all. And, and the reason why I say that is because the vast majority of data we have looking at total daily protein intake and then clinical outcomes, it's counting total protein. So like the numbers we give based, like if we, if we were to give protein recommendations based on only high quality protein intake, like if we could retrospectively analyze everything, protein recommendations would be lower. So, yeah. Cool. No, that's actually really interesting. I've never heard about the recommendations actually take into account the lower quality sources anyway. So, nice one. Well, yeah, like the, the way that's done most of the time is we look at two intakes of protein, you know, and there's some manipulation to get them there. Sometimes it's giving them protein in addition to their diet. Um, sometimes it's just telling them to eat more, giving them diet plans. Uh, and then we look at the outcome. So, you know, it, it's it's rare that you get a study where a longitudinal study. There's plenty of short-term, like 16-hour studies where all that gets away. But most studies that look at total daily protein intake and then outcomes and strength and hypertrophy or fat loss, um, it is a component to their diet. And then the total amount is assessed. And then we go, okay, what was better? So like, for example, uh, the meta-analysis led by uh, Rob Morton that I was a part of and many other people were part of that came out. Uh, and it looked at gram per kg per day and then outcomes of strength and hypertrophy. And we recommended at least 1.6 grams per kg up to 2.2 grams per kg uh, in a you know maintenance or, or surplus state. That's based on just the, the total amounts people ate, not necessarily just the high protein amounts or the high quality proteins. And I guess the only thing that comes into concern for the high quality could be kind of the idea of like 20 to 40 grams of high quality protein to ignite MPS uh, maximally. Is that something you'd have, like if you had a meal and yeah, it was 30 grams of protein, but 20 grams was coming from like pasta and 10 grams was from a little bit of chicken that you had on the side. Could that be a concern potentially? If you did consistently, yeah, I, think, I guess. Yeah, I mean, if, if we're talking about bodybuilders here, the recommendation would be 
um, try to have a, a protein serving from a protein sourced food at each one of your meals. Cool. And that, and, and that pretty much satisfies that, yeah. that, that theoretical optimization, and actually, which is yeah. what I do. And, yeah. And if you've got time for one too. more question, Eric. Mm, um, absolutely. Cool. So I think this, this is probably a quick one. Uh, it's from Ben Bartlett and he asked, does he think that fitness infographics have become absolutely done to death? Um, have very little value and they themselves should be dead and buried. <laughs> uh, that, that's a good question. The Whether something is derivative uh, or if it is played out, uh, which is the uh, layman's term of derivative, um, is not necessarily the same thing as whether or not it still has value. You know, And I think the thing to remind ourselves is that somebody started lifting weights today. Every day, uh, every day, someone started lifting weights, and that person might be still in high school. Uh, they might have, be in a, in a blue-collar job and really never have focused on any kind of physiology or nutrition, and, and really be in a very, very different place in terms of knowledge than you. Um, they may not have access to someone who is mentoring them through training, and something as simple as you know, green light, red light, bad form, good form could be useful to them. Um, I like you, when I see that in my feed, do want to shoot myself, but then I try to remind myself that maybe that's useful to someone. Um, now the only problem is that that good or bad mentality can get you into problems later in your career when like, like for example, you must squat the depth or not. Well, what if you squat the depth, you have to round your lumbar, you know, and, and you're, and you come onto your toes. Like, so I think long-term, you don't want black and white thinking of people. You don't want good and bad, uh, but it, it may be useful for people who aren't yet ready to get those finer details. The only, the only concern I have with that kind of information is that it doesn't really nurture that, uh, that finer tuned way of looking at the world. It doesn't really teach someone to look into grays at all. Mm -hmm. um, it may prevent them from hurting their back on a deadlift in their first year of training, but then maybe they're 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 not open-minded enough, or, or or don't have the skills to manipulate the training when it actually matters later. So I think it's uh, it's always a fine balance when you make informational posts on whether it's actionable or whether it's theoretical. So it changes people's minds and they think differently, but they don't they can't really do anything with it, or they can do something with it, but it can be taken out of context. And that's kind of the the struggle of, of, of producing fitness content yeah. in a Instagram, Twitter world. Yeah, I think it's, I, I just think it's difficult nowadays because people, it was articles initially that people were like, oh, that's quick info and they didn't have to, it could just be a page long and then it's all, all the format is becoming less and less. So you have to provide like as much information you can in the easiest way possible for people to digest and sometimes things can be taken the wrong way and um it's just becoming a way for people not to have to think much about things and yeah i can, I can see problems with that yeah i, I would say as a, a, another addendum is that people are going to consume the content that they want i think it's easy for us to look at the popularity of twitter with its limited word count or instagram with just a picture or a 60 minute video we're noticing that YouTube, uh, you have a stark drop off in views as soon as you go over five minutes and assume that that's everyone. Uh, but then we can also be impressed by the fact that like, for example, Stronger by Science, Greg Knuckles' website yeah. is the most read blogging website for fitness, which wow. is crazy, you know? And he has like 
seven thousand word article disclaimers to start it off. <laughs> Podcaster are popular as well. You yeah. know, like um, not that 3D Muscle Journey has the most popular podcast in the world, but we had I think three hundred fifty thousand downloads last month, and we fuck around and talk for two hours about nothing sometimes. <laughs> you know, like not talking about nothing. We're not just sitting there twiddling our thumbs, but we have in-depth conversations that are mostly about context mm-hmm. um, for hours and people surprisingly like to listen to us. So I think um, to, to the, to, to the, to the question asker is, is don't, don't think that there aren't people who aren't interested in long form content still because there are. Cool. Perfect. And we have covered the first round eventually of all the Q and A's. It only took three uh, Q and A's to go through all of them. So I'll have to do another one. I'll have to try and grab you and get you back on the show. So I want to say a massive thank you to all the question askers um, and all the listeners and to Eric himself, because uh, he is taking his own time to come be here. Hey, no, I appreciate the opportunity to help people. Thanks to you for what you do. Awesome. And I'll make sure kind of the 3DMJ, all your information is below the podcast. And it is, I mean, as a listener to it myself, like it's just, it, it's great because it's not so much like my podcast or the, the ones we put out. It's very much you guys chatting as a group. It's probably more similar to the chats me and Pascal have. And it's just invaluable as a coach to actually hear those discussions between you. Um, it's something unique about that. So no, I, I love them. That's really good feedback to hear because that's we that's exactly what we hoped it would be, and it's people surprisingly think there's value in that, so we're <laughs> going to keep going with it. Perfect. <laughs> Cheers, guys. We'll catch you soon. Bye.